everyone. My name is Haley, and this is Straight Talk with the Doc, the podcast on all things addiction, mental health, and recovery. Our expert is addiction medicine specialist, Dr. Bott. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Haley. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So I think we can all agree that 2021 has been an unusual and challenging year for many of us. But 2021 also marks 50 years since the War on Drugs campaign began in 1971. The campaign's goal is to reduce the illegal drug trade in the U.S. by increasing the size of federal drug control agencies like the creation of the DEA, in 1973, and requiring mandatory prison sentencing for drug crimes, among other factors that were put in place. But after 50 years, people are looking at this campaign and recognizing that drug use in our country is still very prevalent, and the war on drugs may have had an ulterior motive. But before we get into that, let's talk about the beginning of the war on drugs and how it all got started. Dr. Bott, how did this begin? What acts did President Nixon take? Well, while well, Haley, you, you gave a really good um, background there. And it, it's, it is hard to believe 50 years has gone by um, and where we are right now, right, in society, dealing that we still have a war on drugs. I mean, if anything, it's like um, one of the biggest problems that we have to society, especially with the opioid epidemic. But uh, yeah, from, from the 70s, you know, uh, Nixon recognized that uh, drug abuse, he identified it as like public enemy number one. And, um, you know, I know there was been some controversy and some, I think, people speculating that he had an ulterior motive on on creating that. And um, because maybe those who were using substances at that time, or he proclaimed to using substances, were not really in, in sync with his political agenda. Um, some things that he did put together was uh, the Controlled Substance Act was introduced during his time. And that really is what we have today, the recognition of understanding how drugs are scheduled into different classes uh, based on their uh, abuse potential or and medical use, as well as the Controlled Substance Act's, um, you know, evolution or lack thereof since then. But um, he, he additionally added the, the DEA, from what I recall, um, was created under him. And, uh, you know, we've seen that become a, a full-fledged, uh, robust side of our, our government. And, um, you know, rightfully so. The drugs are a huge problem. Trafficking is a huge problem, um, not only in, in the United States, but around the world. So the DEA is involved in, you know, um, not just what we do here in our country, but how drugs are brought into our country. So, but those are the two main things that uh, I know that have come out of that, um, as it relates to him, um, the DEA's creation and the controlled substances. With scheduling the drugs and the different classifications, how was it before the 70s? Was it kind of just an unlabeled free-for-all? Well, no, no. I think, you know, when you look back in history, there has been some incremental changes, um, you know, with how drugs were used from, you know, recreational perspective or like a medicinal, you know, perspective. And, you know, drugs were used. You know, marijuana has been used for for centuries for um, everything from religious to uh, medicinal purposes and cocaine, um, similarly, um, and by different cultures. But uh, we did see in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, different things trying to put um, 
you know, regulations in place, uh, as we've seen even with prohibition and alcoholism and uh, not with alcohol. But uh, the point is, no, there were there were regulations that were coming in and taxations that were being imposed uh, over the previous hundred and some years um, prior to the 1970s. We did see that evolve. So it didn't just all of a sudden come about. I just think it was more robust, though, um, in in the 1970s. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you for explaining that. So when I was researching this topic, um, something I saw was something about the sentencing uh, for uh, possession of different drugs. And one of them was the difference between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. So crack cocaine triggered an automatic five-year sentence if you were found with five grams of it. But if you were found with 500 grams of powder cocaine, it met the same sentence. Why was that controversial? Well, I think the, the biggest reason that's controversial is because it shows a double standard and also the, you know, who was using crack and who was using powdered cocaine. I mean, I think if we look back retrospectively, crack cocaine was, you know, often identified and used by people in lower socioeconomic sta- status, uh, the African-American black community, uh, Latin American communities where, you know, powdered cocaine was often associated with glamour and, and partying and more affluent people, you know, so if you're going to penalize, you know, um, drugs in, in an in a unequal way and have a higher threshold for stuff that's, you know, um, specific to a different socioeconomic or demographic group, well, you know, it's definitely going to be called out and it's going to be seen as uh, unfair. And I believe that's what we've seen for many, many years. I mean, um, the laws behind the war on drugs and people who have been, you know, prosecuted, it, it has not reflected equally. And unfortunately, um, you know, where we are 50 years later, you know, there's still a lot of reform that's needed. Many people are being sentenced to have a substance abuse problem or have underlying issues within their just culture or communities that have, you know, uh, plagued them. And, and have contributed to the disease of addiction. And those things aren't getting addressed. And so when, you know, there's so many factors involved in why certain people or groups or individuals develop an addiction. And uh, one thing the government cannot do is have a double standard on how people are um, penalized for this. And unfortunately that was happening in the example that you just gave. Yeah, expanding on that, you know, unequal reflection a little bit, Nixon's domestic chief uh, policy stated that Nixon was after the anti-war left and black people and anti-war left kind of means people who identified as hippies. Um, Did enforcing drug laws actually attack these groups? Yeah, I I believe they did. And um, again, if it's serving, you know, somebody's political agenda, by, you know, uh, identifying or creating certain laws or regulations that eliminate people who don't think like you do. Um, well, then definitely, uh, you know, the underlying motive being called out there uh, can be questioned. And if I believe that came from somebody who was uh, an insider um, and, you know, who was well aware. Now, I didn't exist and I wasn't around at that time. So, you know, that would be a lot of speculation on my part. But um, I don't necessarily um, disagree with that being a potential, uh, you know, perspective. 
and a potential, um, you know, agenda that he had. Yeah. Okay. Let's jump forward a little bit to today. It's been 50 years. Has there been a reduction in substance abuse during the 50-year war on drugs? The short answer is no. I don't believe that there has been a reduction. If we look at the statistics that's been come out, and maybe there's even more statistics and more groups that are keeping track of this, maybe there's certain types of drugs that are a little bit more antiquated and in less um, circulation. But overall, no, the the prevalence of substance abuse and uh, substance dependency and addiction is uh, it's super high. And I, I do believe if we look at it um, as a whole, you know, when we when the war on drugs were created, it was very uh, it was just basically a punitive thing. We, when, when you call it, you know, a public enemy, number one, or when you view it as something that needs to be, um, you know, penalized. Well, it, it created a multi-tiered effect. You know, if you're going to arrest people, well, what are you going to do once you arrest? Are you going to impose some sort of sentence? Well, if you're going to impose some sort of sentence, you're going to have to put them in jail. And if you put them in jail or in prison, well, we need to have space for these individuals. So it, it became a, you know, uh, a domino effect of utilizing resources to take care of people that at that time was looked as a moral deficit because they use drugs or something of moral turpitude. Now, I think that being that the background of substance abuse and people who use substances who are not trafficking it or using it for distribution, but personal possession or secondary to an addiction, and now it being recognized as a disease, I think it does change the whole entire, you know, dynamic of what are we doing as a country and and helping solve the problem. And just being punitive, I believe a lot of lawmakers, um, regulatory individuals and bodies, as well as physicians and scientists, uh, are tending to disagree with that approach. So fast forwarding from then to now, has that war on drugs been effective? Um, I don't think it has. I don't think it has. You know, it's funny you mentioned that it was kind of seen as a moral failing. That reminds me of the Just Say No drugs campaign that was in the 80s started by uh, Nancy Reagan. You know, it's just say no, <laughs> you know, like it's that easy. Yeah, no. And, and it's, it's ironic, actually, because, you know, the views on substance use disorders and addiction, uh, again, we, we, you know, because this is a, a medical, you know, and a, a scientific type of, you know, podcast that we're trying to get out there in terms of the, the background as why we're educating individuals. But um, at that time, you know, to, to simplify it and just say no really speaks to their lack of understanding or awareness of all of the different, you know, influences and factors that go into somebody using drugs. So exactly like you said, I mean, to just say no, I wish it was that easy. And if you speak to somebody who's suffering with a, a, a significant addiction, I, I, I believe in their heart they would love to say no. But uh, we know it's a lot deeper than that. And uh, I wish uh, Miss Nancy Reagan's uh, initiative there and just saying no uh, could have worked. And if it was that simple, but unfortunately we know that it's, it's a really, it's a multifactorial disease. And, um, you know, uh, there are so many different things that we need to uh, address in terms of, um, you know, solving this issue of substance abuse 
throughout our country. In terms of, you know, attempts to solve this issue today, what's the goal with certain states decriminalizing some drugs? Does this encourage people to use drugs or is it an attempt to stop a cycle of incarceration and addiction? Both things are going to happen. There's going to be people who have um, an ulterior motive who are looking to legalize and decriminalize um, cannabis because they want to use it and they want to use it because they don't think it causes as much harm as other things. Um, They like to get high and um, they enjoy it recreationally. And then at the same time, you know, um, you know, there are many people who might look at it as a, as a, as a business opportunity. They might look at it as if we can somehow legitimize this and decriminalize this and allow it to be used, it's going to help benefit um, somebody's pocketbook. And so, um, but at the same time, the recognition of people who are using it that might have an addiction, um, are we really helping them by sending them to jail and uh, incarcerating them? So, um, you know, that understanding and looking for alternative ways to help these individuals through treatment programs, through diversion programs, well, decriminalizing it definitely can support those endeavors. So I think there's going to be a lot of fallout to this. Um, There's going to be a lot of different ways people are going to look at it. And uh, depending on what perspective you're coming from or looking at, um, you know, I think you can see it in multiple different ways. But decriminalizing for those people who do have an addiction and and getting them help, um, that's a huge step to address the underlying um, substance use problem that they may have. So I know one of the groups that was really affected by the war on drugs uh, back in the 70s was just low-income communities. So I wanted to talk about why low-income communities are affected by addiction back then and today? You know, that's that's a complex question. And, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people are using. I mean, when you don't have money, you don't have educational infrastructure. Uh, a lot of the times a community is a reflection of um, multiple things um, that are part of a culture, part of a, uh, a, a city and a system that's part of... Um, a state that might not be supporting that specific uh, group. And unfortunately, when you've trickled down that uh, socioeconomic ladder and you are, are, are breeding within each other and you fail to find jobs and you fail to have um, support, you know, the risk factors for other things, you know, um, increase. And in the end of the day, when you're trying to look for alternative ways to get out and you don't find a way to be successful, I mean, these are risk factors for anybody to seek ways to escape from that difficulty, from that, um, you know, uh, that, that duress that you're under all the time. And so these, these, these people, these, these communities are more susceptible to substance use just due to that multifactorial Uh, financial, educational, health, all of those lack of opportunities that exist. And uh, substance abuse, unfortunately, can become a way to survive, um, to to deal, um, to cope. And um, putting these individuals uh, in jail is not necessarily the solution. Now, of course, I'm not saying to not penalize those who are drug trafficking. And those people who are 
part of a bigger crime syndicate. And anybody can argue that, well, anybody using is ultimately the target is the end user and they're contributing to the financial, you know, um, part of this whole thing. But yes, but at the same time, we, as, as a society, we are responsible for, um, you know, supporting and um, taking care of each other. And that's part of living uh, amongst one another. And that's part of, you know, our, our attempts to, to uh, solve these issues cannot just be putting one in jail because it's just going to keep going and going and going. And unfortunately, we got to get to the underlying roots of, of, of these issues. In terms of that, with treatment and like stopping the cycle, how are low-income communities limited in their access to treatment? When you have low income, it's often because you don't have a good job. And if you don't have a good job, you often don't have health insurance. And if you don't have health insurance, you don't have access to treating anything. So, you know, it, it's, it's really, again, it's a domino effect. I mean, when, when you are put into a situation where, you know, you may not have um, good role models, you might not be able, you not, might not be educating yourself, you might not be able to support yourself. It's just all the, it's the multifactorial um, component of this that ultimately uh, renders somebody vulnerable to, um, you know, using drugs and alcohol. And how do they get out of this? So it is a vicious cycle, unfortunately. It really is a vicious cycle. And that's where we hope that people can step in. Uh, the government on a city and state and federal level can come in and help out um, to provide resources, even if it's as much as, you know, um, primary preventions and educations and um, creating um, alternative programming for, for individuals to... Um, find jobs and not being incarcerated, but getting educated or not being incarcerated and getting treatment. You know, these are some of the things that can help people reenter society and be, be positive contributors to, to not only themselves, to other people who they might support and people as a whole. But again, um, it, it's so complicated and, um, yeah, unfortunately, when you when you're in that situation, it's very hard to get out, and you do need help from a, from a from a bigger system. Outside of the system, though, how can people, you know, like me, general society, how can we help people with addiction instead of demonizing them? Is it a mindset? You know, this is where outreach and um, messaging really um, is important, because again, there's so much going on in terms of how we communicate um just look at about what we were talking about like in the 70s when we when we made it look like if you use drugs you were evil or drugs in its sense were evil yes they are bad for you but without explaining or educating or understanding the disease of addiction that might be contributing to somebody's drug use and so this is where we need to have multiple multi-tiered interventions. And again, it goes back to public health models of primary, secondary, and tertiary, you know, preventions. And it really starts at the beginning and it talks about it and it, it starts with education, uh, educating people on, on addiction and, and what that manifests like, educating people on, you know, you know, prevention of um, substance use in the first place, starting out in the schools, starting out at primary care um, with your physicians 
and, um, you know, making sure people are getting checks and educating people, um, you know, in, in schools, in, in the medical community where people are going to be uh, interfacing, even in churches where people in community and people of influence are interacting with one another. But it has to be a national campaign of understanding uh, substance use. And it, the more surface area that messaging can get out to, the better. But if we demonize it and if we look at it that people who use drugs are bad people, well, we're not going to change th this whole thing. And we're always going to have that negative stigma associated with um, substance use disorders and people who use it. So getting help to them is always going to be limited if it's looked at that way. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Dr. Bott, is there anything else on this topic that you think people should know? I think we, we fought a long time to, um, you know, change the way people who use substance uh, substances are, 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 are viewed. But again, I think um, the most important thing is um, education on addiction to to ensure that people are getting tools at the right moment and times in their lives, starting as early as possible when people can cognitively understand, you know, staying away from drugs so they're not using in the first place. But then those who end up using it aren't automatically penalized or incarcerated when they can have, you know, diversion programs available for people who might have a true problem and maybe have a first offense. And these things are starting to gain traction. We do see this starting to get more prevalent throughout the country. But again, it, it's going to take all of us to consistently provide messaging of support and, um, you know, getting the resources to the right place. There's a lot of money that's been spent on, on the, you know, the criminal justice system and on our Department of Corrections and putting people in jail. I, I'm sure that if some of that money was used in alternative ways, we can get people who need the help the help that they need. Definitely. And for anyone listening who has a loved one struggling with addiction or is struggling themselves, addictioncenter.com has free resources and information, so check that out. And thank you to our listeners and Dr. Bott for being here today. We hope to have you next time for another episode of Straight Talk with the Doc.